This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. So look, this is a pretty amazing show that we've got for you today. Up later in the hour will be the obviously irrepressible Christos Solkis, best known perhaps for The Slap, uh, also Barracuda and an absolute raft of other books that have been going since his uh, writing career really broke in the 1980s. He's here though to talk about an extended essay that he's done on Patrick White, uh, which is a question that some people might ask, do we really need to hear more about Patrick White? According to Christoph Solkis, yes, we absolutely do. As much as uh, David Marr's kind of, I guess, benchmark work on Patrick White, White, A Life, which if you haven't read it, obviously, and are interested in anything to do with Patrick White, you should most definitely read. I have to say that Solkis has taken an angle that I completely did not expect. So that's something to stay tuned for. But I'm going to very shortly uh, be playing you an interview that I recorded yesterday with Philippa McGuinness, who is perhaps best known as being one of the publishers um, of nonfiction over at Penguin Random House. Um, She herself hasn't really written a book until now, and this one is something quite extraordinary. It is The Year That Changed Everything, 2001. I'm sure that everyone can think of something that happened that year. But the way that McGuinness has put together this book is also something, um, you know, deeply personal to her, but it carries things that I think maybe some of us didn't remember happened in 2001. Maybe we were too young. Maybe we just forgot. But she's managed to string it all together into a narrative that spans a year and the seeds of what's happening now were very firmly planted at that time. You're on 3 Triple R listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. And one of those people is the wonderful Philippa McGuinness, who has long been a publisher and now is foraying herself into writing a book. Her book is The Year Everything Changed, 2001, Tampa, 9-11, George W. Bush, The War in Afghanistan. I mean, 2001 was a year that was pretty much memorable for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, For McGuinness, though, she did have some very, very personal elements that were going on at the time. She's managed to put together quite an amazing narrative uh, out of this year, disconnected events joined together um, to seemingly make a whole. But were they disconnected or were the seeds of, of the things that went on to happen, things that were planted long ago? These are things we should really be thinking about in an era of fast turnaround news. Um, and we're talking minute by minute, second by second on Twitter. Books like this kind of um, really cut things into a sharp relief. You get a sense of things uh, as they go along and that they're part of a bigger narrative. So... I recorded this interview with uh, Philippa McGuinness when she was uh, in town from Sydney yesterday and I hope uh, you get something out of it. Philippa McGuinness, thank you so much for joining us today on Backstory. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you. Now, this is an extraordinary book because it starts, uh, you know, 2001, immediately people think of the the great big things that happened like 9-11 for Australians, perhaps even Tampa. Uh, But you begin with something that was very much an anticlimax, which was the fizzer of the Federation 
you know, centenary celebrations, uh, if you can even call them that. Uh, it's written with a great deal of, of humour and wryness, I have to say. Uh, but it's really fascinating because it sort of starts there. Obviously, it washes up in, in Tampa and, and 9-11 uh, with a very, very personal kind of tragedy tying all these things together. And there's a lot of other little kind of surprises in 2001, those kind of things where you're like, oh, that happened. I, You know, Wikipedia started. Who knew? Uh, which is is really, really fascinating. So I want to talk a little bit about this. You do, in the introduction, describe why you decided to do one of these sort of annual histories. Uh, But 2001, you know, when you embarked on it, did you really expect it to go the way that it did? No, I didn't. And that was one of the really exciting things about it, you know, that you launch into something. And of course, I knew about I don't know, the the big ticket events, you know, 9-11 and Tampa, Afghanistan, as, as you said, George W. Bush becoming president. But really, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And that was hugely exciting. So when I signed the contract, I don't think I realised that, for example, ANSET has collapsed had collapsed. And that was a really big deal. I definitely didn't know about Wikipedia. Perhaps I knew about the iPod launching that year. But then there was all this other stuff. I probably did know that Sir Donald Bradman had died that year. But what I didn't know was that I would find it so interesting to write about him. Like that, uh, excuse the pun, but knocked me for six because I thought Bradman, you know, like he's just a white guy who John Howard lionised. What's he got to, you know, offer me that will be interesting? But quite a lot as it turned out. So that's just one of the great things about a big book project. You don't know where it's going to end up. Well, let's just talk about some of that stuff because actually, you know, you've kind of really quite masterfully managed this as a narrative, which I think is extraordinary because really a year is this arbitrary set of dates that are just clumped together. Um, You know, over time there's been a calendar created, but you've managed to find the through thread um, in this story, if you like, of 2001, you know, with all the little sort of tangents along the way. Um, And you know, I really do want to go back to that Federation sort of debacle. Um, So it's a really interesting one because when I was reading it, um, you managed to sort of wind in just how much of a non-event the sort of celebrations were, just, you know, the ridiculous nature of the parade that went down the street. The fact that you'd really tried to go back and look over footage to find some generous approach uh, to, you know, maybe some hindsight, um, Perhaps it was better than I remembered and it definitely wasn't. Um, it was just this absolute mess of things and it was probably a real sort of evidence that Australia didn't know how to process Federation or what it was um, and never had. But that in that are the seeds for many, many things that happened throughout the year. So please talk to me about what you drew out in that chapter, which is January of 2001, and why you made the choices you did. Um. I really wanted to write about Federation and the parades and the reenactments and all the rest of it because nobody remembered that it happened. Even my own husband who had come along with me, I remember it really clearly, to Anzac Parade in Sydney 
to watch this lame-ass parade go by. He said, no, I, I didn't go to that. And I said, yes, you did. We were there. And he said, I don't remember. And I said, well, it's the you know, unforgettable event that the whole nation has forgotten. And I I was interested in memory, I guess, and why this big landmark event, the centenary of our nation, of our democracy, went forgotten. And part of what drove me was that I knew I could get a few laughs and a lot of what is to follow, a lot of what comes, not all of it, but a lot of what comes is pretty dark. Mm. So I thought, well, we can start on an upbeat note. Also, I felt that following the Olympics, you know, not many months before where we had had a real sense of optimism, I think, about what Australia was about and what we could be, through the year, across a number of fronts, that really dissipates. And to me, Federation was a moment that in some ways could have been a genuine celebration, but people were quite ambivalent about it. And looking back, I wanted to ask, why was that? Why? It's really fascinating because you do ask that question, could we, you know, the change the date um, of Australia Day, for example, to January the 1st, could there, you know, potentially have been a republic, you know, um, could we have had a sorry um, mm. to, you know, stolen generations? Those sorts of things were real lost opportunities and instead you end up with this sort of strange mishmash that then leads into some of the really the dark periods, as you say, that have taken us to now and the real culture wars and um, and actual wars yeah, <laughs> um, that, that ensued. Um, there was one thing when I was obviously embarking on reading this, I was looking at Federation and the discussion of um, Edward Barden, our first um, Prime Minister, and the fact that no one knew who the first Prime Minister was even. Um, and you did really wind in a lot of the the issues around Indigenous representation and, you know, and the problematic nature of that. And you picked that up later as well, um, you know, in touching on things like, you know, Captain Cook, are we all Captain Cook? And I just thought that was really fascinating. But the one thing I was sort of going, where is it, is this notion that um, within days, literally, of the first sitting of Parliament in 1901, they'd passed the Restricted Immigration Bill. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting that you don't mention it there. And I'm like, but then of course you do, because you're going into the discussion of tamper and everything. It was really beautifully done, Philippa, that you've kind of managed to sort of subtly drop all these little elements into that first chapter. In a chapter that you're mostly just going, this is so lame, um, about this terrible sort of parade. But you have dropped in that darkness, like many a good book, you know, mm. the foreshadowing happens in the first first chapter. Um, so that was really well done. Um Talk to me about some of the unravelling of some of those ideas throughout the book. Yeah, well, race, I think, is is really central. Um, and I'm really glad that you picked up on the white Australia policy being part of our federation story because I think that is one thing that made a number of us feel quite ambivalent, that we knew, yes, we were a young democracy and that was wonderful, but that Federation was tied up with empire, Britishness and 
racism. Mm, absolutely. And that's, that's really confronting and representing that in a kind of a playful parade, you know, down many of the streets of Australia is just not possible. I found an, an image actually of the original Federation celebrations that included the, the Chinese arch in Melbourne mm-hmm. and, um, and Chinese um, dragons and the, the Chinese community actually in, in Melbourne were part of that celebration. And that's kind of been whitewashed out because actually, you know, more than part of the reason for Federation was fear of, you know, Asian invasion, literally that, the, the yellow peril as it was then called to our shame. Um, but none of that, of course, <laughs> was represented. But you still have managed to pick up that kind of thread and many of the other through threads, um, you know, and kind of carry that throughout the year to what mm-hmm. then happens to create, you know, a sense that this is all part of an ongoing narrative. Yeah, reconciliation with Indigenous people was something that I realised I had to write about because it was so charged in the lead up to the centenary of Federation. Um, So William Dean, who was the Governor-General for part of 2001, but he had said perhaps the year before that if... Australia, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, I don't remember the quote exactly, but if Australia reached its centenary of federation in 2001 without reconciling with Indigenous people, we would be a lesser nation. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Um, it was a time when many Australians were waiting for John Howard to apologise to the stolen generation and that got caught up in the culture wars. I write about the opening of the National Museum in Canberra which on the face of it should have been a pretty straightforward moment in the Centenary of Federation story but it ends up being a theatre, or as I joke, a theatrette at one point of the culture wars because there's so much anguish about the way in which the frontier wars are represented in in that museum. So all these themes seem to run through that year as indeed they have run through Australian life for centuries, you know, since 1788. But I think that we were grappling with all kinds of identity issues in 2001 and we still are, you know. Every time I read, you know, more recently about Captain Cook, you know, there's money being um, put towards a major Captain Cook Memorial, Scott Morrison announced a couple of weeks ago. Or when I read about the war memorial in Canberra not commemorating the frontier wars, not engaging with that. The frontier wars are are wars with, you know, between Europeans and Indigenous Australians, which, you know, uh, military historians have always considered to be wars and only recently has that bubbled up into mainstream understanding. That's right. But all all these themes that were so prevalent in 2001 haven't gone away. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to 3RRR's Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Philippa McGuinness about her really amazing book, The Year Everything Changed 2001. And it's not just about the kind of things that you would expect it to be about, um, 9-11 obviously and Tamper and, you know, George W. Bush, the war in Afghanistan. There's so much else going on. And one of those things that was going on, Philippa, was something very personal to you. And, you know, I'd love you to sort of talk about that a bit in your own words because it did, that melancholy and that sadness um, really did infiltrate the book um, and it's it's really quite a moving element. Yeah, well, when the idea um, hit me and it really did hit me, it was like, you know, if it had been a cartoon, there truly would have been a light bulb going off um, above my head. When I first started thinking of, about writing about 2001, one of the reasons I thought, I have to write this book rather than getting someone else to write it because I'm a publisher and that's that's what I do, was my own story. So on New Year's Eve, the last day of 2001, we buried our son in Singapore. His name was Daniel and he was stillborn. So just a week before that, I was 39 weeks pregnant thinking we're about to have a new baby. You know, I was full of hope and excitement. And even though it had been a pretty rough year on the global stage, you know, in a way, I think the world, certainly the Western world was saturated with a kind of grief. And then we were going to inflict that grief and loss in Afghanistan and on it goes. But For me personally, when my baby stopped moving, I, you know, thought, well, I'm sure everything will be all right. You know, I'm a middle class woman. I've done all the right things. I'm getting the best possible care. We were living in Singapore at the time, Um, but it it wasn't to be. They, They couldn't find... Daniel's heartbeat and he was still born. And, you know, even, you know, I've kind of gone from zero to a thousand since the book came out because I I haven't talked about this very much at all. Thank you for doing it now as well because I can see obviously it's still very, you know, the grief, people think that it sort of ends but it, it doesn't, it's a continuum and you know, it's it's a it's a very brave thing to put into a book that that kind of you know because the world contracts with the grief um, as yeah. well as obviously these other things coming in. Yeah, it was obviously very um, intense and emotional writing it, revisiting it, um, and I really do not like to use the word cathartic. I think it's very overused to the extent it's almost meaningless in some ways, but. Something lifted in me when when I wrote that and I've really been so touched, um, devastated really, but all the stories I've um, read about other women who've had stillborn babies, it, it kind of gives me courage and also makes me realise more than ever that 
this experience of stillbirth is first of all very common, much more than much more common than people realise. Um, but it's been shrouded in silence, and I think once I wrote it and incorporated it into part of the broader story of of that year. It kind of gave me voice, really, um, to to process what happened. I mean, to be honest, Mel, I look I look back now at myself in two thousand and one, and I think, my God, how did you how did you do that? How did you get through that? And I think that it's part of being human. You know, so many of us look back at periods of trauma or difficulty or crisis or grief and somehow we we get through um our brains are built for it and sometimes it's only in you know years later that you look back and you think I can see myself now um I couldn't then you know because your brain's sort of protecting you from some of that Mm, You know, one of the most wonderful things about you, including that, is really a reminder that there's these world stage events going on, um, some odd, some, you know, some kind of technologically based, some obviously of vast political importance and and some leading to great devastation and loss on a wide scale. But within that is every human experience. And I think that that's really what you cut into sharp relief was that 2001 was a you know, you can give a, an annual overview, but then within that is the individual experience of every person. Um, it's their 2001 as well. And, and that is really very much the vehicle that I think, you know, helped kind of bring me into this story too. Um, so thank you for that. That was really, it was really an amazing thing to do. I do want to say this book, there is, um, you know, a lot of threads of darkness in here, but you've managed to do it with a great sense of sort of humour and irony and um, being very, you know, clear and at times quite, you know, unequivocal in in your, you know, um, like kind of excoriating sort of damnation of some of these things, but but in a way that actually is very readable. Um, it's a really, it's, it's a very, very interesting book and well done um, for that. I do want to touch on the Bradman thing again as well, because... <laughs> You know, he did kind of become, Howard, uh, I think, used him very particularly, uh, you know, in in this sort of jingoistic white um, Anglo-Australian Protestant sort of, you know, nostalgia-inducing way. Um, you know, he, as you mentioned, um, quite notoriously became one of the questions on the sort of citizenship exam. Um, but Bradman himself was, you know, leaning towards progressive multiculturalism by the time of his death and um, and that very much is lost. And I think that that's one of those things within this is that, you know, the way we tend to look at, at you know, at the immediate um, doesn't give the sense of a real um, understanding of history. And I think that books like this are really important and you touch on this in terms of the Twitter churn and there's no longer a 24-hour news cycle. There's like, if you're lucky, an hour news cycle, probably more like a 15-minute cycle before Twitter sort of churns it and spits it out. Uh, But having books like this really do just, you know, bring you back into a, a focus of actually where all of this stuff came from. And it's and it's not as simple as you think. It really isn't. You know, it's complex and it's nuanced and it's not black and white. And that's all our stories, you know. Perhaps someone listening to this would think of me 
as being, oh, you know, that mother who lost her baby to stillbirth, how tragic. And that's true. That is definitely true. But that's not my whole story. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm lucky and grateful that it it's not my whole story. It's part of me. But, you know, I can also in the same book write about Don Bradman and Nicole Kidman and, you know, Fox News and, you know, all the other kinds of craziness and wonderful things that happened in the world that year. So it is complex. It's not either one thing or or another. And that's why I really wanted to pull out those narrative threads so that people would go with it. You know, they'd find it entertaining and not quite know what might come next. You know, my worst nightmare would be that it turned into a kind of plotting chronological this happened then that happened because that's deathly. Like nobody really wants to read a list like that. So, you know, I was looking for the the colour and the verve and the stories. You know, a lot of stuff, you know, as we've been saying, I had no idea. I had no idea that towards the end of his life, Don Bradman was talking, corresponding with Sir William Dean about Indigenous Australia and multiculturalism. You know, I'm like, what the hell? I thought he was John Howard's, you know, best mate. But he'd moved on and, as I say, nobody really bothered to ask him. And he was a pianist. I, I just thought that was wonderful, um, a wonderful inclusion and really does show you that, you know, it, there's a lot more complexity to even the, the sort of jingoistic stereotypes that we've had thrown, us, thrown at us and a real kind of, you know, step back from, you know, just basically hot takes um, yeah. to get that. Even in a book that does, you know, skate quite quickly through the year, you do manage to get such richness in it. So, Philippa, thank you so much for this book. I could really continue to talk to you about this for probably hours because there is, you know, there are numerous books in this book, um, but you have managed to to create a beautiful, cohesive narrative and and one that is very obviously personal to you. So thanks again for coming on Backstory. I've loved talking to you, Mel. Thanks very much. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. With me in the studio is someone very familiar to Triple R listeners and readers I feel alike. like I haven't left. I was in this seat last night. <laughs> I, uh, I love superfluity as much as uh, the next person, I'm sure. And oh, you're a good soul, Melissa. Oh, it's the greatest. It's the greatest. Um, but I also love your work, Christos Solkis, if, uh, if uh, people haven't picked up on that very <laughs> familiar voice. Um, but this is a really interesting um, book that you have recently put out, uh, Christos Solkis on Patrick White. It's an extended essay, part of Black Ink's Writers on Writers series. It's a kind of beautiful little small format book that I have absolutely destroyed with dog earring. <laughs> I feel like I feel so ashamed, but I... I I'm a full-body reader and eater, and often those two things become combined. Well, you're really kind. I've got to say, I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who was saying he apologised to me. It was about a book he was reading. He said, oh, I underlined it. And I went, um, 
I mean, I no, no, I think that's a lovely thing to do. I like, I love picking up secondhand books, you know, and then f- kind of going, I wonder what this person was thinking when they underlined this passage. So, how do you? Where do you stand on the? I love it. I love, love a good, good annotation. Me I, too. I love nothing more than finding a book with, uh, you know, with kind of notes written in them. Especially the more personal, the better. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, rather than the kind of the VC SWAT notes. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. But then you know, I'm the person that kind of read Freud because I want to know what he thought, you know, to analyse him through his writing, (laughs) I guess. Um, But look, let's talk about this because Patrick White is, and you talk about this in your essay, he's someone who really, I guess, David Marr is the past master on having kind of really nailed down this character. Um, White himself obviously uh, wrote an autobiography, which also gives you a lot of information about him. But you've come at White by a totally different route. And I have to say, when I first looked at this, I thought, why is Solkers writing about Patrick White? Um, and I do remember being, like Tree of Man being one of those books that really lingered with me. I'm not sure uh, if it was that I loved it or that it just had, you know, I wouldn't say I loved it. I think, though, it was had these powerful images that have just really yeah. burned into my brain. Um, but you write about Patrick White as someone who was one of the first writers on on the Australian migrant experience, and that is an angle I want you to talk about. Yeah, look, it was... Um, I know that, um, you know, I was really lucky with this series. We, we, you know, so um, what had happened was... I, uh, similar to you, um, Lisa, I'd, I'd picked up White when I was, uh, when I was really young. Um, struggled through Voss in high school, couldn't, uh, couldn't finish it, had read the Arden story... And uh, Twyborn Affair in my in my late teens, early twenties, you know, the memory of exactly when is is um, is faded. But then I came across Tree of Man again. Uh, it was a secondhand copy uh, a few years ago, and I read it. And I think it's one of the most splendid novels I've ever mm. read. And what I was uh, astonished by one was uh, White's. Uh, power as a writer you know the way he within um a few paragraphs you are entering a, a, a completely different world that's you know that's the experience of fiction that i love the experience of the novel i love but the other thing i was really struck me was um how it felt like i was reading the russians or i was feeling uh, reading someone like nikos Kazantzakis, the uh, greek writer who wrote last temptation of christ and zorba the greek um two of my favorite novels and i thought i was just curious about where that you know, this is an Anglo-Australian writer. Where did that sense of um, language and style come from? And I'm, I'd, I'd, um, I'd made myself... Oh, the last decade, really, I've made a vow every New Year's Eve that rather than do Forsake a Pleasure, I'm going to do something for pleasure, and it's going to be literary. And after reading Tree of Man, I decided that year, my New Year's resolution was I was going to read all of Patrick White's novels. And it, so I'd already done that when Black Ink approached me with the uh, Writers on Writers series, and I just made absolute sense that I would do it on Patrick White because they asked me what writers I would uh, write on, and I, three were in my head, but I said I'd love to write on Patrick White because I came to him t- late. I didn't understand him and now I felt and I felt through that connection I was making with um, a language of migration that I could say something about him and yeah yeah well it's interesting you even say this you're like you know when you were first coming at white you're thinking you know he's another one of those dead white male 
characters, you know, of, of literature, literally his last name is White. Yeah. Um, but that is not what you found. And talk to me about why you think he wrote the way he wrote. Look, I... I so what you, you mentioned the David Marr biography and Flaws in the Glass, which is uh, Patrick White's autobiography, and I purposefully um, decided I was going to read those two books at the end. You know, so I was going to I was going to read the novels first and and make up in a way immerse myself in the lo- novels. But also, you know, as I said, I found this language. I found this um, language of exile. I found this language of always writing from the position of the outsider, whether the outsider was a um, uh, an immigrant, whether it was a um, uh, a, a woman, whether it was um, a, an Aboriginal artist, whether it was um, an artist in the generally as in the Viva sector. One book that I came across that made a really that was really important to this essay was. Um, uh, a book of interviews of Manolis Lascaris, who was Patrick White's long-term lover. And reading the Lascaris interviews um, by, a, by a, uh, a man called Vracides, an academic in Sydney, Vracides Carales, um, suddenly everything fell into place. And I think what happened with White, and this is, is that through Manoli falling in love with this man, and we're talking the mid-20th century, so they, they were both fighting in World War II, that was not an easy time to be homosexual, but they pledged their life to each other. And I think what Lascaris was able to give White was an insight into the exile and migrant experience because that was Lascaris' background. He was um, a Greek from the um, Anatolia, from the disbanded Ottoman Empire. Uh, so he had that perspective on, on the world. And I think White, White was a great writer from the first novel, Happy Valley. If, you know, if you read that novel, you go, this is astonishingly um, breathless mm. uh, as, as a piece of writing. But it doesn't have the, the spiritual language, I guess, so for want of a better phrase, that you find in the later works. And I think that's, that's what Lascaris's position as an exile and a refugee was able to give Patrick White. I think White had it already as a homosexual in the culture. Like as an outsider as perspective. An outsider. And did, as a colonial. You said something really interesting in that, that you know, and, and it's a, a very clear observation that many Australian writers were, you know, basically left Australia to make their writing career and as such when they wrote about Australia it was tinged with nostalgia and White never did that. He His first book you like it, it was him warming up to that kind yeah. of career as an English language writer, and he would have been okay. But thank you know, praise to praise <laughs> to the gods that that did not happen. That instead he returned to Australia and and engaged with it. At times, hating it, um, chafing up against it, and as, seeing as we its flaws. Seeing you its know, flaws. We, yeah, exactly. Seeing it for what it is, um, as you do with your family and the things that you love. You also sometimes hate, um, but you see them clearly. But, yeah, you, one of the things you said about it, his relationship with Lascaris is, like, that he absorbed this notion of Greek orthodoxy, not in a religious, in, not in the kind of truly religious sense, but that it infiltrated his writing. It kind of, I love this sense of him being colonised by that <laughs> as well. Yeah, that's a good... Because that's the truth of colonisation. It is a yeah. two-way street, even though one player is often in the power position. Tell me a bit about that. Look, I think, you know, and I write about it in the essay, I think the, you can see that there's a yearning to find a way 
you know, from Tree of Man, right? And it's there in the Aunt stories, which is an earlier novel. It's, it's, it's there in all this writing, a way of being able to describe something about what it is to be astonished by the world, to be in awe by, um, by nature, by, by human kindness, and also by human terror. And, you know, he grew up in a Protestant world and i think he rejected that that world because it i you know he it for him was the world that he was leaving behind it was a world that was and in a sense oppressive for him and i think what las Garces offered was this ritual and language that came from orthodoxy that was something strange that was something different but also expressed something of that awe that expressed something of that terror and i think that that's why almost that instinctual sensation I had when I first started um, reading Tree of Man of going, this feels like a Russian novel, this feels like a Greek novel, comes from that, from that language. And I think we all do that. You know, we, we struggle against sometimes the world, the culture, the world, the society that's formed us. And if we're lucky, if we're fortunate, and I think Patrick White was really fortunate, you find a way, uh, whether it's... Um, well, you find a language from somewhere, and he found it through his lover and through orthodoxy to be able to um, to describe a spiritual spiritual sensations and spiritual states that maybe we you know we're, we're too scared to use the language group we've grown up with in mm-hmm. in describing. I feel that too. I mean, I don't know about you. Like, I'm not religious but there are things about i want to communicate in my writing about the world and how the world is and the only languages i have really about it are existential and spiritual languages and even though i'm not religious i have to use those languages and so um i think that was what uh patrick white was struggling with in his writing and i think uh, and this is where i am in awe of him as a writer he found a way of doing that You know, I'm still searching for that. (laughs) I think I'll be searching for that throughout my life. This is a really amazing um, essay in the sense for me that I had no desire to go back to read Patrick White again. I thought I've, you know, that that was something that very much as many Australian school children do, you you really had that. I think school education can sometimes ruin ruin literature. Uh, But I feel as though I really want to revisit White through this. But the, the really interesting thing, I guess, is this notion, the, the myth of, of white Australia, if you like, is that we lose the nuance of what was actually there before, which helps new writers, writers who uh, are, you know, weren't in the original conversation, if you like. What role like that do you think Patrick White can still play? Does he have a role in that, in this time where we want diversity in our in our writers, we want to hear new voices, voices of Australians that in the past were not given a voice? Look, I've, um, I think uh, I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't believe that was the case. Um, and, and, and as you said, Mel, in my early 20s, yeah, he was a dead white male. I, you know, I didn't think it was important to read him. And what is... Uh, what I've learned by going th- back to someone like Patrick White is that um, I'm kind of been humbled by my arrogance because, of course, these writers, these people were thinking about the very same questions, maybe not in precisely the same terms that we think about it now, but you can't read Writers in the Chariot, you can't read Voss, you can't read um, The Solid Mandala and and not understand that this man, this writer, this intellectual, this poet, because I think 
po- uh, Patrick Whitey's language is poetic, was trying to communicate something about racism, something about what Australia is. One of his great characters for me is Alf Dubbo, the Aboriginal painter in um, Riders in the Chariot. And I think there's something, you know, that's not to say that, I, and I try and be, you know, I try to talk about what it is to be a white person writing about this world um, and this this land and this um, and the the language you use, but you, but also I also want to say, wow, he created this amazingly complex living character in Alf Dubbo. We shouldn't forget that either. That that's possible as well. I think that is something that is promising. The great promise of fiction. The other thing I would say is, writing this book is about kind of tracing my own education in in becoming a reader, right? And when I was uh, a teenager and a, um, a young adult, I never saw myself as part of Australian settler mm. culture, right? I was a wog. I was a, you know, my parents were Greek immigrants. I didn't feel like I had that relationship to, um, to Australia. I felt like I was a bit outside the conflict between the Anglo-Celtic uh, and history and the and the torturous, ugly history of dispossession and colonisation, which is the black fella, white fella history in this country. But now, at my age, you know, decades later, I can see that I am part of that history, that it, we migrants move into that history over that time. And that's what I'm trying to work out in this essay, what that movement is and what does what consequences does that have for my own writing mm-hmm. and what consequence does that have for how we, all of us, write and read what, what it means to be Australian. It is one of those interesting things where, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants moments where there are some people of the past or authors of the past that you think, you know, your time's up. Uh, but it is interesting to think that, you know, you can reach into a place um, you know, into a person, into a writer like Patrick White and find something that is a is a continuum to the present. Yeah, and the other thing I would say, I really urge people... You know, I've dedicated this book to a man called Yaroslav Havir who was my English teacher in year nine in high school and then I had him for final year English lit. And he was, he was from uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. He was the first person who... Oh, he's not the first person. My mum and dad were the first person who gave me books. But he was the first person who said, I want you to read in a different way. I want you to be challenge yourself as a reader. And he gave me the great books of European literature. And I think you have to exercise those muscles. You have to learn how to read, you know. Um, and I guess what I'm saying in this essay, Mel, is Patrick White is worth reading as a great writer period you know not just as an Australian but that for, because for most of us we are Australian we come from this place there's an even added um, urgency to reading reading him I'm just I'm just I'm just sad it took me so long I really want to talk more and unpack more about uh, this book and Patrick White, uh, but sadly we oh. are out of time. It's insane uh, how quickly that happens. Christos Solkis, thank you so much for joining an us ab- on Backstory An today. absolute pleasure. Thank you. It, it absolutely was uh, an amazing thing to talk about. Um, 
You've been listening to Backstory on 3 R. Uh, if you were just listening earlier, um, I've been chatting with Christoph Solkis about his incredible essay on Patrick White, which is a part of the Black Ink Writers on Writers series. Uh, there's a lot in there. There's a lot to think about. Can I, can I say really quickly, it's a great series. Um, I'm so Black Ink. Um, so Eric, um, Eric Jensen has written a terrific book on um, Kate Jennings and Alice Pong, a terrific one on um, John Marsden. And Nam Lee's got one coming out on David Malouf. Michelle the Kretzer and Shirley has it. I think it's great we're doing this series. I've got I've got my orders written out. <laughs> I have to be honest, and it's a nice way to kind of do what you're doing—the read for pleasure. Can moment. I just say really quick? Is that um, Michelle and I? We did a session at Sydney Writers Festival on this book, but on Patrick White, and we both said afterwards it was exhilarating not to talk about our own work to actually talk about a writer we love. We should be doing more of that at festivals. I absolutely think that that's wonderful. And to, you know, to see where writers come mm-hmm. from, not fully formed, they were influenced. Again, Christoph Sockers, thank you so I'll much. I'll shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Backstory. We've pretty much run out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank Philippa McGuinness uh, for coming in as well yesterday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.